There's a famous definition of journalist that we've used around here from time to time. Journalism is the art of writing with complete authority about something you know nothing about. Just another large cry Black mob violence everywhere. I mean, if you turn on a TV or a radio or, you know, all these different news sites around the world, you'll see a print geek, a news reporter, sitting there telling you what we should be doing in Afghanistan and Iran and Iraq, and they're giving us all the big anti-terrorism stuff back at home. They're telling us how we should be spending our money here, not spending it there, saving Social Security here, fixing Obamacare there. And above all, hating Trump 24-7. But here's the one thing you never hear the print geeks wax poetic about or wax authoritative about. It's their own newspapers. Because they know every time they're on TV, there's got to be something in the back of their mind going, listen, I'm going to sit here and be an expert on everything on the planet about my own business. I hope nobody asks me why my own business is crashing and burning like we know every newspaper and almost every newspaper in the country is doing right now. I mean, over the last 40, 50, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, make it 30 to 40 um, newspapers have been caught flat-footed on every single, you know, dip and dive in their industry. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the simple ones. What about classified ads? They used to be kind of a cash cow for papers. That was a time when the money just came in so freely that, you know, the publisher didn't even really worry overly much about staying in business. They just thought, hey, I'm just worried about how big my yacht's going to be this week. Back again. Just then came Craigslist. Craigslist just siphoned off for free all the classified ads that the newspapers were running, whether it was for selling this or getting a job here. Why go to a paper? Go to Craigslist. How did the papers respond? They just shrugged their shoulders and said, hey, nothing we can do. We're not in the Craigslist business. Well, what about what about the sub subscribers to newspapers? Now, I know this had something to do with child labor laws, but it was something that could have been fixed. There used to be lots of kids in every neighborhood in America who would deliver newspapers door to door. That's what I did, seventh and eighth grade, every day, get home from school. Blah, blah, blah. Get down to, you know, walk two blocks to get down to the place where they dropped my newspapers off. First thing I did, yank a paper out of the middle of the stack. I would sit there and read the paper. Always loved reading the, you know, not the local columnists, the national columnists that they would print. And then when I was done reading, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd put all the papers in my bag, start walking. Walk down the block, back. Take a right. Walk down the block, back. Take a right, walk up a block, back. Take a right, go over. Take another right, back, done, at my house. Basically, every, I mean, there were like 80 customers on my, on my paper route. That pretty much meant every house I passed by took a newspaper. And if somebody didn't, it was extremely unusual. I mean, not too many people were moving in and out at the time. Uh, maybe there were, maybe there was, maybe this was just the beginning when white uh, ethnic cleansing was beginning and white people were moving out, black people moving in. When they moved in, I was kind of like the welcome wagon and knock on the door. Hey, you want a newspaper? Pretty soon everybody was signed up. Everybody got the paper. And at some point, somebody flicked the switch and they said, oh, child labor laws. We can't have kids delivering papers anymore. Blah, blah, blah. That, those were the, those were the salesmen for the paper. And the newspaper, these editors and publishers, they're not just potted plants. I mean, they know people who run the legislature. They helped elect them. They could have gone to the legislature, local and national, and said, this is a national emergency to keep our papers in business. We have to be able to let 
12 and 13 year old kids deliver the darn things like they're independent contractors and not employees. Because that was the crux of it, right? The IRS came in and said, hey, you're not independent contractors, you're employees, thus you're entitled to the minimum wage, thus you're entitled to X, Y, and Z. All of a sudden, all the kids stopped delivering newspapers. And so who was, I mean, these papers don't sell themselves. A sudden subscriptions plummeted. But even as they were losing really important parts of their business and their subscribers, the papers, they started narrowing their focus more and more and more, focusing more on liberal readers and pretty much casting aside anybody with any kind of conservative bent. They just were not worth having as customers. So now we look around the country at these once proud chains, Gannett, McClatchy, other ones. They're crashing and burning. Headline today out of Miami, the Miami paper, local paper. They're like laying off 70 people. And, you know, one of the and the news story about it, it goes, man, they were doing such good work too. No, they were doing boring work. They were doing predictable work. They were doing work that any liberal could write in their sleep. We move over to Denver Post. They just fired one of their columnists because the guy wrote a column that said there are only two genders, man and a woman. Oh, no, they're not going to have that in Denver. Bing, bam, boom. They fired their most popular columnist. I mean, that's a paper that is, you know, a bit on the edge of crashing and burning a couple of times. All on the edge. They're all going through owners. The own, you know, one owner takes them over, he strips out some assets, sells it to the next sucker. He sits, strips out some assets, sells them to the next sucker. And on and on we go till we get to the Chicago Tribune. That's called the Tribune Company. They own the Baltimore Sun, Chicago. I think they own the LA Times and San Diego Union Tribune too. Anyway, they own some big papers around the country. And um, the reporters in these papers are in a panic because some real businessmen bought their paper. Or at least they bought 35% of it. And so they're struggling to get control of the paper. And when they do, they're going to start asking some business questions like, hey, we pay you a lot of money here to write stories that people will read. Anybody reading your stories? And the answer is, hey, wait a minute. Nobody told me in journalism school people actually had to read this crap. They just said I had to write really long, boring stories. And that way, people would think I was a journalist. I remember I was out golfing one day with a in San Diego, and we, we actually, we actually, I actually played with a newspaper consultant, and he had a gig that month with the local San Diego Union Tribune. And you know, you talk as you go golfing, you're walking around, and he's going, "Hey, Colin, we just can't, you know, we can't get people to subscribe to it. We can't get people to read it." But, you know, we do a readership surveys. People say they love the paper. It's like, hey, you know, do, do, you tell me, do you read it? Do you read that paper? Do, you, do, your, do your friends read it? When they read it, do they, the next, you know, that day at the lunch, at the water cooler, do they come up to you and go, hey, man, do you see this article in the paper? It's really interesting about something I really didn't know about. Or are you hassling some school board member for eating, for eating brie on a school board trip? Well, Colin, our job is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. All right, whatever. Don't tell me. Tell that to your unemployment counselor next month while you're waiting in line for your next newspaper gig. So these self-important reporters, they just, they just, one thing they're good at, they are good at selling themselves as big self-important gurus. I'm thinking of a guy named John Meacham. He was the editor-in-chief of Newsweek, which used to be a thing. Newsweek used to be a big thing. Man, I used to love getting that Newsweek subscription coming to my house every every week. Man, I'd get that Newsweek. I'd read the beginning, read the Periscope, and I'd read the end. Sometimes George Will would be in there. Then there'd be a guy named Arnold DeBosgrave was in there. Remember the first time I met him at a party in San Diego? I went up to him, you know, shook his hand. I couldn't even say anything. I was so impressed by the guy. This John Meacham. He drove Newsweek into the ground to the point where they sold it for one dollar. That means you're really selling it for your your pension. You know, you like you buy this means you have to take over the pension liabilities. And that's a position a lot of these papers are in. New York Daily News. 
thing was on the market for a long time before somebody bought that. The Washington Post, Steve Bezos paid $250 million for Steve, I think it was Jeff Bezos. He paid $250 million for that thing. I'm still convinced that was a vanity project. I don't think that paper's making any money. Well, not making any money strictly off the newspaper operations. Trump likes to call it the lobbying arm for Amazon. And there's a lot of truth to that. So the papers just continue doing their way. And of course, when they come to our topic, the topic of black violence, black dysfunction, black mayhem, they don't want anything at all to do with it. Nothing. You know, inside of a newspaper, inside the newspaper building, you got your publisher supposed to be in charge and the editor nominally works for him. But the way it works in effect is the editor does his thing without much interference from the publisher. Unless something hits the fan, then, the, you know, and then maybe they figure something out. But what the publisher is, is a glorified ad salesman. So he's always going around to all these meetings. You know, if they have a rotary meeting, he'll show up and give a speech. Or, you know, some kind of community group meeting in the ghetto. He'll go down there and tell everybody how much his paper is really con- committed to righting all the wrongs down there. And along the way, the newspaper publishers and editors decide, you know, we're going to like at like the Philadelphia Inquirer slash Daily News, one paper now, they, they kind of decided along the way, we're going to put a lot more fellas on our staff and we're going to write a lot more stories about the fellas in Philadelphia because you know what? That's the right thing to do. But here's the big question. When the publisher goes to these meetings in the ghetto and he meets with all these self-appointed community leaders, are any of them ever coming up to him and saying, hey, uh, and talking about anything in that paper except for something having to do with black people? Answer, no. The fellas and lovely ladies just are not really that into reading the local papers. That's a white thing. And so do they depend on the local papers for, you know, where they're going to buy a car? Do they depend on the local papers for what, you know, where they're going to, spend their entertainment dollars for the weekend? No, that's a white thing. They'll figure that out all by themselves. Thank you very much. But it doesn't matter. It's like they just keep going and going and going. They're going off the cliff. And the very last thing you hear them say as they go off the cliff is, more, more, double down on all the stuff we've been doing for the last 30 years. So I was thinking about this and all all this. When I read a story that was written by a guy who's one of the editors at the Baltimore Business Journal. That's not a daily, but really when you're in that, but it's published in Bloomberg. So that's not a daily either. They give, they give store, you know, papers pick their stuff up. But when you're in that journalism racket, a lot of people think it's a fraternity slash sorority where they're all working for some mythical God of journalism no matter what sucker is signing the bill, signing the, their paycheck this week. That's the way they look at it. There's just an enormous amount of group think, and it really doesn't differ from paper to paper to paper. It doesn't matter like what story, what paper you pick up. Most of the stories are going to have the same angle, the same attitude, the same little reporter's tricks to kind of to get you to play along with whatever they're trying to convince you of. I mean, the Baltimore Sun has been trying to convince people for a long time that Baltimore is on its way back. It's a great place. It's Charm City. Yes, we have a little problem with crime, but that doesn't really matter in the bigger scheme of things, does it? So this week, Bloomberg published a big story. It was, it was a long story. I didn't count the words. A couple thousand. And, you know, in newspaper terms, that's war and peace. It was all about the Baltimore Inner Harbor. I didn't read it to learn about the Inner Harbor. I know what's going on at the Inner Harbor. I read it to see how much, how long it would take for them to throw their hands up and say, you know what? This is a crime-ridden, chocolate, dark, and dirty, and dangerous town. And that's why that Inner Harbor, which used to be a national example of urban renewal, why that thing why that is crashing and burning. And you didn't really get any of it. You didn't really get that. You just got a little bit of it at the very, very beginning. But for the rest of it, um, they just ignored it. Here's a quote from the beginning of it. Uh, Suandra Chata, part owner of the smoke shop, tobacco, etc., says business is down 35% from when his store opened. 
um, about 10 years ago. He blames the years delayed, poorly executed interior renovations, as well as the constant drumbeat of news about crime happening nearby, which he says discourages visitors. Quote, foot traffic is getting every day lower and lower and lower. That's it. And the quote, I mean, that's it. That's all you hear about crime. Baltimore is, you know, sitting in the middle of like some of the highest concentration of rich people in the whole country. Washington, D.C. is in the South. Richmond, these are all a couple, you know, two hours drive. Washington, D.C., there's Richmond. You go up the Pike, good old Wilmington, Philadelphia. You know, I mean, and you go up to New York. And these are all places in the Inner Harbor. They've got aquariums down there. They've got the museums down there. These are places where, you know, people can go on a bus or people can take a field trip. They used to just because maybe there was a convention there just because it was a little bit of an adventure and people heard it was a nice thing. So this article talks about how in 1980, when it opened, I mean, they got like 7 million visitors. They thought they were going to do that in a year. They did that in like a couple months. So this was a thing, right? You got the, you know, the baseball stadium there. You got the, you got the aquarium. It was kind of a cool thing. On July the 2nd, said the pay, says Bloomberg, at a celebration reportedly attended by thousands featuring a live performance from the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra and fireworks to boot. Man, when I saw that Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the fireworks were going off in my head. I just remembered during the riots, they had a woman who was the director of the Baltimore Symphony. I think she spent her time like in Argentina and London and Baltimore. So she flew into Baltimore Wave, wove, you know, waved, wove, waved a little stick around a couple times a year, and she was like the toast of the town. So somehow they got, and she was doing these programs for the little fellas. You know, if you take uh, classical musical instruments out to the little fellas, this will pacify them because music hath charms to soothe the savage breast. I mean, they did everything. They did everything that an organization is supposed to do to absolutely no effect whatsoever. And so they're sitting there talking about all these great things this group is doing to single-handedly solve. This was in the Baltimore Sun. Solve the you know the problem of Baltimore when she volunteers that you know she kind of agrees with the rioters. She agreed. She agreed with all the people who were burning Baltimore down. The same people who put 120 cops in the hospital in Baltimore during the riots over a drug-dealing, drug addict, no-good loser named Freddie Gray. Oh, yes, I believe, you know, we don't listen to them carefully enough. Man, when I saw her do that, it was like, oh, my God. This is like one of the people that was like, you know, the cultural elite of the city giving the fellas permission to go riot. And I got a letter from a brother of a guy in Baltimore who used to sing in a chorus in baltimore he sang with him in the chorus sat next stood next to him they would perform with the baltimore symphony this guy was so down with the cause he took his family and moved them into the ghetto because he wanted to prove once and for all damn it that all this stuff about white people not being safe in baltimore was a big piece of bullshit and he was going to show him wrong that's what he did he died there robbed and murdered by a bunch, by fellas. When I said that, his brother and a couple of his brother's buddies, they went ballistic. They started, you know, yelling at me, threatening me. They started talking about bringing shotguns to my house. I don't care about that. I'm very well defended. And I told these guys that it's like, you guys don't bother me a bit. If you want to come by, I mean, do you take your best shot? But, you know, I'm not defenseless here. Okay. But they were blaming me for the death of his brother. But it's amazing how often this quantum mechanics comes in, right? It's like, yeah, Colin observed this guy put himself and his family's life in danger and the act of observing it being in danger, the act of observing him being killed is what led him to move into that neighborhood in the first place. Yeah, it's quantum physics. Like I said, you got to go study that for 22 lifetimes before you figure that out. He was not the only person associated with that symphony to walk out the door of the symphony and be met, you know, people carrying their instruments to be met with bad business outside. People stopped going to the symphony. 
because they didn't want to go deal with the fellows on the street. They didn't want to deal with the crime in Baltimore. It's why everybody moved out. Capiche? I mean, people in Baltimore know this. Whatever else is going on in that mall, it could be the greatest mall in the world. People just aren't willing to forget the fact that they played a baseball game there because it was so dangerous outside, they canceled the attendance. They played the game on the field to an empty stand. I don't know if that's ever happened before. That was during the Baltimore riots. So many videos of so many riots. So many videos of cops being stuck in the middle of a riot, getting on their on their dis, calling dispatch and saying, hey man, frantic as they can, they're shrieking. We need help. We're surrounded. They're throwing rocks at us. Help. Help never came. 120 people went to the hospital. That's Baltimore. It all happened near the Inner Harbor. Then a, then a year later, Target closed down. Ground zero for a lot of that was Target at the Mondaman Mall. Target decides, you know, we'd rather not do business in a place where we are ground zero for black crime, violence, mayhem, dysfunction, and really bad business. So they moved out. All, every, every civic leader in Baltimore went to a meeting going, oh my God, why is Target moving out? Why? We got to stop them. Can't we stop them? And not one person at that meeting just like this article, not one person stood up and said, uh, yeah, Target's moving out because uh, the black violence and hostility that's part of the DNA of Baltimore drove them out of this town because it wasn't just about theft. That's a big deal. But it's about violence to their employees arriving to work in the parking lot, leaving to work in the parking lot. So much bad business at that Target. They weren't making any money. And they said, man, this is like, this is behind. They were with Colin behind enemy lines. We're getting the hell out of here. Nobody would say that. But nobody wrote a huge article like this fairy tale. Giving every reason in the book, except for the main, the only one that makes any sense. So then they got, then they, this article, they went and start talking to all these architects and all these developers and people, that's their business. Well, one guy said it was because of the pavilions. It could be revitalized by going back to the original formula. Get rid of all the national people, the national businesses, and just make it all local Baltimore mom and pop shop shops. Yeah, that's the ticket. Then he blamed it on the owners, the mall owners, who are the victims in this, not the perpetrators. We need a new owner that cares. We've had two really bad owners in a row, both from out of town, as if that has something to do with it. Then he point the kid, but then he kind of like makes, I don't think he really understood what he was doing here when he said this. I think this is the guy whose father built the thing. The customer base is there and it's untapped, he said, pointing to newly built high rises and condo conversions around the harbor. Quote, there are more residents living downtown than any time in Baltimore's history. Then he talked about the Inner Harbor, the Aquarium, the Science Center. In neighborhoods beyond the harbor, freshly minted food halls are packing in hungry crowds by returning to 1980s roots. Yeah, harbor, you know, the Inner Harbor could turn in, could jump on board of that into that very hot urban dining trend. Hey, this is written by a guy whose own magazine six to eight months ago published a big story saying overnight, 15 of these foo-foo, she-she, $9 craft beer, $65 steak places to eat that all put a sale sign up almost the same day and not one shred of interest in, in buying that kind of business in Baltimore. Why? All the excuses just keep going on and on. You want to know another excuse for the Inner Harbor? So we got all these people living near the harbor, right? Inner Harbor. All of them. Record numbers. But yet the traffic is down. Why won't those people that live near the Inner Harbor go to the Inner Harbor? Why? Two reasons. One, there's an enormous amount of black and white crime and hostility there. We've done... Listen, how many stories have we done on that? But two... Maybe even worse, the people who live in those places know if they go down to the harbor or somebody conks them over the head, they take the guy to court. The judge is just going to pat them on the head and shoo them out of the court because we're not going to criminalize our children. We're not going to fill the cradle-to-prison pipeline. And above all, we're not going to arrest our way out of this mess. 
a lot of these people that are living in these big gleaming condos in Baltimore, they're kind of like fortresses. They think if they live there, I mean, it's all walled off. They're going to be safe. Well, people in Chicago are finding out that's an illusion too. Anyway, so let's get back to another. These excuses fascinate me. These are all excuses for why this once nationally known gleaming center of commerce is now, as our president would say, a shithole. They talk, here the article goes on to talk about connectivity to the city is hampered by street design. It's ringed by multi-lane thoroughfares feeding the two interstate highways that penetrate the city. Pedestrians coming from downtown need to cross thick spans of traffic to reach the shopping areas. So, to facilitate better walkability, they suggest eliminating lanes on these big streets to make the highways less like highways and more like a city boulevard. Okay, you've got a street a city. It's one of the most dangerous places in America, especially for a white person living in a chocolate city. And your solution to bolt to the harbor, inner harbor, is to somehow build these boulevards for, for the big, rich, white customers who live in these gleaming high-rises, yeah, put them on a, let, may ask them to walk to your property. I represent to you two things. One, that's in this article. <laughs> two, there's some very, very smart people that say very, very stupid things like this. You know, having, having, connect, having being near a freeway or having connection to a freeway, hey, I'm sorry to go old school on you guys. That's a plus. You don't have to be a, a real estate development genius to know you need to, if you're going to have a big thing like that you need big roads to pump these people in and out very easily now they've turned the they're trying to pretend this plus is a minus and a couple of other geniuses got together and said we need better screening of mechanical equipment and loading docks and other aesthetic improvements and, uh, you know, we've got the uh, this place, sub-markets, subpar street level access. Okay, now here we go. Here comes the, here, here we got, now we're getting the big geniuses. We're getting the real big geniuses that have gone from, you know, one, they went from checkers to chess. Now we're up at 12th dimensional chess, whatever we're calling that these days. They've got, here's what they want to do. They want to knock down a lot of buildings there and make a wetland park that would take, that would, you know, help re-engineer the space. You know why? Because 2003 or something like that, they had a hurricane down in Baltimore. Hurricane Isabel, 2003, the Inner Harbor Promenade submerged under four feet of water. And so they're saying they have to rebuild the Inner Harbor in order to cope with this inevitable deluge caused by global warming i know okay that sounds stupid right i mean i'm first thing i think of is the minneapolis star tribune another bunch of geniuses they run these they ran an editorial this might be my favorite editorial of all time you know some of these people they get these grants and they do these dog and pony shows at editorial pages all over the country they just go from town to town you know like medicine man in these old carnivals like hey get your dr kyle and elixir here I'll cure your rheumatiz well, they go into these editorial rooms, and first of all, the guys are kind of surprised that anybody from out, to, you know, anybody more than ten miles away would care about anything they think, because secretly, when you're on an editorial board, you look around and you go, "I'm the only smart guy in here. Everybody else is kind of dumb." Anyway, so these guys go in and do a dog a pony show about global warming in Minnesota, and they said because of global warming, that means crime is going to go up in Minneapolis. It's going to happen really soon. So these are the big brains that run our newspapers or TVs. These are the people who inspire the people who run and who appear on TV and radio and all these different websites around the world. The big brains, the architects. And that was like catnip saying, yeah, we got to, you know, global warming's coming. So that's the reason why the inner harbor's in such trouble. Yeah, what about crime? That's kind of happening there every day. We know that's going on. Um, nobody knows, or nobody, and no, <laughs> nobody not getting paid to say it believes in global warming. Well, Colin, you just don't understand. We're playing twelfth-dimensional chess here, Colin. Here's a game of checkers. Go back to your corner because we got to fix global warming, and that's the only reason why this shopping center, this mall, this 
this gleaming center of commerce is in such trouble and why it's going to be so hard to fix. Well, what about the crime? What about the people who run Baltimore, who said we have to give people room to destroy, who say we're not going to arrest our way out of this mess, who say every bit of bad business in Baltimore is caused by one thing, one thing only, white racism. Oh, and by the way, how many black people have business or running businesses in the Inner Harbor? Well, I don't know, Colin, not that many. You proved my point. Aren't enough black people in there working, running, owning the places. That's why they're going downhill. That's why we don't give a damn whether you white people go bankrupt or not. I'm not making all this stuff up, folks. I wish I were. I wish I were. Then I wouldn't have to do this podcast. I could go back to playing golf with rich people. Like today on TV, they're playing golf out in San Diego. Torrey Pines played that course a hundred times. It's fun to see all the old landmarks there and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's one thing. So I saw that on TV. One thing I did not see, and I never saw it the hundred times I played there or the 10 or 20 times I went to see this professional golf tournament at Torrey Pines in San Diego. All the times I went there, I never saw any argy-bargy. I never had to go through a, a checkpoint where they wanded me down and frisked me for weapons. When they when I first started going to golf tournaments, they used to have a sign that said, no cell phones. That was like the worst thing you could do was to break a cell phone out on the course. If you did that, oh yeah, that was terrible. They've given up the ghost on that. Now it's like, listen, we know we're not going to take your cell phones away from you, but just silence them, okay? And when Tiger's putting, don't go out there and talk too much. And that's about the height of the argy-bargy. There is none. So why isn't there any? Why isn't there any argy-bargy at PGA golf tournaments we see every Sunday and Saturday and and two days a week on the Golf Channel if you're really into it? Where's the argy-bargy? Could it have something to do with the absence of the fellas? Maybe the people who run the uh, Bloomberg. Maybe the people who run Baltimore Inner Harbor. Maybe they could help answer that question why there's no argy-bargy at their golf tournaments, and why there's so much at your business. All right, let's get this party started with a little, you know, ID from good old Colin. Hi, this is Colin Flaherty, the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. It's out on paperback, back on lulu.com, easy to get. It's also, you can get it for Kindle at smashwords.com. I'm working on the audio book, all good. Audiobook of White Girl Bleed Lots, doing great. I almost gave away his name. Um, the barbershop, the barbershop guy has been sending me a lot of great songs. We're gonna hear one a minute in a minute, his newest one. So we're getting we're preparing that to put that online so people can stream that and purchase that. Oh, I spent a little time today with a uh with a website called uh Subscribe Star. So I signed up for them. That is going to essentially going to take the place of PayPal. And, you know, so I, like I said, it's like, I'm not, it doesn't really bother me when we hit an obstacle like PayPal. I was on PayPal for a long time. They kicked me off. It doesn't bother me that much because I always figured like, you know, we're behind enemy lines and it'd be great to be up on the fifth floor of the Ritz Carlton, but we're not. We're kind of like sleeping in the water pipe next to the bridge and we're changing bridges every night. That's the environment we're living in. And that's that's why I'm so grateful to all you guys for understanding that and being part of it. And so I'm not going to complain about it. I'm not going to go fight PayPal. I mean, I can do two. I can be in two businesses. One, I can be in the fight PayPal on YouTube, Google business. Or I can be in the expose the greatest lie of our generation business. So it's going to take a couple days to get subscribe star up. And when it does... Um, you just, all you got to do is just go in just like PayPal. You just do bing, 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 bing. You sign up for it. I think subscribe stars really, they they like you to do more of a monthly thing. And so if you don't want to do the monthly thing, you can just do what a lot of people are doing now. Send stuff right to good old Colin's house. Get them all, read all the letters, looking at a bunch of letters now. Address is easy to find over at minds.com. Here it is. 712 West 26th Street, Wilmington, Delaware, 19802. So that's how we're going to keep this thing alive. That's how we're going to make our keep our platform alive. We're just not going to give up. We're not going to succumb 
to these little slings and arrows they keep throwing at us. The stakes are too high. There's too much crazy stuff going on there. And that's what we do here, right? We expose the greatest lie of our generation, the hoax of black victimization and white racism. And we do it all without racism, without rancor, without apology. Here's a story we did the other day out of Philly. On by itself, it was a pretty bad story. And we used it as a, it was a, some fella goes into a little Asian grocery store, kills the guy. And we used it as a reminder to tell people like, yeah, Philadelphia is now the place where they put, where they are outlawing plexiglass in your store. So if you have a store where the fellas are coming up and they don't just shoot you, they throw stuff at you, they curse you, they threaten you, then the plexiglass kind of knocks the edge off a lot of that. Well, the city council decided that was an insult to black people and they outlawed it for a lot of these stores. Okay, so we did that story just the other day. Fella goes into one of these places, big bam, boom, the guy's dead. 31-year-old Asian guy is dead. That's pretty bad, right? Pick up the paper, <laughs> pick up my email today. I go, Colin. They go, Colin, it just got worse. Well, how could it get worse than that? Yeah, they were looking for the guy, the 18-year-old kid who killed the guy. They've been looking for him because he killed somebody else a few months ago. Philadelphia police say they have arrested a man wanted for two murders, including a recent killing at a South Philadelphia grocery store. Take a look. This is a suspect, 18-year-old Tyseem Murray. Police say he shot the clerk inside of the grocery store on Porter Street two weeks ago. Murray is also charged with killing a 15-year-old boy in South Philadelphia last October. Another large crime spree. Black mob violence everywhere. Call the cops, but they don't care. Long over to you now. We examine authority of the Philly PD and all the calamities. Cop on the beat. While walking on South Street, beat down to the ground. Tomorrow, rinse, lather, repeat. Back in school, we used to dream about this every day. Could it really happen? Rebellion on display. We never came up with an idea that it sounded smooth. It's a criminal justice reform. Bring it here to you. Westside Philly's back again. Just another large crime spree. I might stab you in the back. Call the cops, but they don't care. Spotlight is on us now. Chief of police. Da 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 Live and direct from Philly Town. Put that camera on me now. We are ready to roll. Not on my watch. No, no, no. Just another large crime spree. Black mob violence everywhere. Call the cops, but they don't care. Do do da da do do da 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 da. Listen, listen to Colin Flaherty. Do do da da do do da 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 da. Listen, listen to Colin Flaherty. Westside Philly's back again Just another large crime spree Black mob violence everywhere Listen to Colin Flaherty Westside Philly's back again Just another large crime spree Black mob violence everywhere Call the cops but they don't care I mean, we could almost say ditto about this thing happening down in St. Petersburg, Florida. We did this story a week or so ago, reminding everybody that bartenders and waiters and waitresses 
Yeah, including one, I still a couple I still remember in Baltimore. Kid moves to Baltimore, gets a job, you know, down in Inner Harbor or Fells Point, decides he's going to get on his bike and drive around at 2 a.m. going from home, from his work to home. They found him and killed him. His mom said it was an accident. No, they pulled him off the bike and killed him, okay? So that's what bartenders and waiters and waitresses have to put up with. They leave their place 1, 2, 3 a.m. Uh, they're leaving. A lot of, you know, there are fellas out there waiting for them to relieve them of the one, two, three hundred dollars they just made that night in tips. So that's pretty bad, right? Our great viewers, our great listeners sent me an email going, no, Colin, it got worse. Turns out the guy who killed him, he, I think he knew him and they arrested him today. He beat this bartender for an hour and they think it was with some kind of pipe and they've got the video They've got the audio. You hear the guy begging. You hear the guy saying, hey, man, I love you. You're my friend. Why are you doing this? Bam, bam, bam. He just keeps beating him for over an hour. He died from a beating. He gets to keep living and my brother doesn't. Know. Scotty Jinks' sister is an emotional wreck while talking to Eight on your side. After learning how police say he died in this parking lot last week after leaving the sports bar, then getting into an argument with Christoph King. And he knew this guy. He's begging him, saying, Chris, please stop. I love you. I stop. I love you. And I just can't believe that he would just sit there and still beat my brother. Detectives believe King used a metal object to pummel Jenks repeatedly until he died. King, found in Gainesville aboard a Greyhound bus heading to Tennessee, appeared before a judge on Wednesday. A warrant says video from the scene catches him using numerous racial epithets as he delivered the fatal blows. Scotty's friends gathered recently to remember his life. He was a loving father, a loving uncle, a loving brother, a loving son. He just, he knew how to make make you smile. Scotty Jenks was 48. He worked as a cook and bartender at the outpost off Gandhi. He has an eight-year-old son who will now grow up without his father. It's so senseless. He's never upset anybody. He always makes everybody happy. He just, everybody loves him. Here's another story. I mean, all I can tell you is that a couple of fellas killed a white girl. And I had to listen to like five different stories till I got one that was even halfway coherent. They just kept dancing around the whole topic until they just they just mishmashed all the facts up and it was just one big confusing thing until finally we learned that somehow there had been some kind of argy-bargy earlier in the day between the girl and the guy. So the, gir the guy calls up the girl's girlfriend, says, hey man, can you come out to my crib at midnight? Yeah, bring your friend. She went out there, there was some kind of marijuana thing uh, happening as well. Takes out a gun. At least one guy, maybe two, took out guns. And they killed her. Police are formally charging a teenager, 16-year-old Seneca James, with felony murder. And we're getting one of our first looks at the suspect now. He's accused in the shooting death of Dominique Taylor last month. Authorities are moving him from the Allen County Juvenile Center to adult jail now. ABC 21's Corinne Rose shares the new information she learned today. Investigators say last December, 18-year-old Dominique Taylor had been in a fight with four other girls when later that day, one of the girls got a text to meet a friend at the Villa Capri Apartments. She allegedly told police she drove Dominique there, and when she went into one of the buildings, she saw two boys at her car and then saw one of them shoot Dominique through her windshield. Court documents say the girl told police she heard what she thought were two people shooting as she ran away. Those court papers say crime scene technicians found numerous 380 caliber shell casings outside the car. Dominique died after being hit twice. Police interviewed a co-participant who apparently told them that 16-year-old Seneca James and another teen told him they shot Dominique because of the fight earlier that day when Dominique had allegedly pointed a gun at James's aunt. The co-participant also apparently told police James specifically said he wished that he had also shot the girl who drove Dominique there. Court papers say officers found two 380 handguns at the co-participant's home. When detectives interviewed James, the court papers say he told them he'd handled the co-participant's guns so his DNA would be on them. 
Police say an additional witness said James confided to him that he'd killed Dominique. The court documents say James later called a detective from the Allen County Juvenile Justice Center to say that the girl who drove Dominique had been lured to the apartment complex under the guise of buying marijuana edibles from her, but in reality, to fight her, and that he only fired in the air in order to get Dominique out of the car so he could take her gun. James then allegedly told the detective the co-participant took the gun from him and shot Dominique with it. A lot of black and white murder out there. Just had a guy drive up from Baltimore. He was driving by Wilmington. So he said, hey, I think I'll stop in and see good old Colin. So he stopped in. We had a nice talk. We, you know, he was talking about what happened to him when he was a kid, ninth grade, busing. He was just in some kind of black violence nightmare. But we were talking, I think I mentioned the word dangerous neighborhoods. And I even, because he was looking around, we were sitting on my front lawn. We were, you know, he saw what, what kind of neighborhood it was, what it, what, it, what it is today, what it was then. And I kind of corrected myself when I used the word dangerous neighborhoods because, you know, this was, you know, a guy younger than me, but still looked like he was in good shape. And he didn't, didn't look like he's a veteran, didn't look like he's walking around wearing a sign saying, I am an easy target. Come and take all my money and all my stuff. I will not resist. No, he doesn't give off that vibe. People who do give off that vibe, whatever the fellas, whatever their failings might be in school, no, they can pick up that vibe from miles away where a white person just doesn't want any trouble and will give you what you want. They end up dead. You know, there's a weird story in Seattle. So we've I'm doing a lot fewer mass shootings than I used to do, not because they're not out there, but because I like to do like 20 at once. But anyway, over the last couple of days, we've probably done five of them. But there was one I had my eye on, and I just wanted to report it as the fellas because all the circumstances surrounding the mass shooting was not was something I've only seen the fellas involved in. It's out at McDonald's, a couple of people got into a disagreement. All of a sudden, there's a lot of gunfire. All of a sudden, bystanders are getting shot. And all of a sudden, nobody knows nothing. Nobody has a description. Well, they arrested him. No, they didn't arrest him. They identified the suspects today. I don't think they've arrested them yet. You know, we don't run a gambling parlor around here, so I'm not going to say, should have bet on that. But it was, it was two fellas. Of course it was. I mean, just because Seattle is like 6 7% black, that doesn't mean the black crime and violence isn't wildly out of proportion there as well. As a matter of fact, it's, it might even be kind of more out of proportion there because of you've got a whole city full of victims who are absolutely convinced that they are down with the cause and the cause should be down with them. And whenever they meet a fella, they're absolutely convinced the fella's going to feel all these warm Martin Luther King Day vibes coming off them, and they're down with the cause, and the cause should be down with them, right? No, there's a lot of bad business in Seattle. A lot of bad business we have reported on many times here. All right, let's head on down to Jacksonville, and let's call this story Ain't No Fun When the Rabbits Got the Gun. So some white guy decided it would be a great idea to meet three fellas sell him either to buy or sell an iPhone. I think buy. He had some money on him. Anyway, gets there. Surprise, surprise. The fellas take out a gun, take the money, threaten to kill him if he tells anybody. Off they go. He calls the cops. Okay, they don't report this part, but I don't see how this story works without this part. You can find your iPhone, okay? You find it by using a computer. You go, hey, find my iPhone. Bing, bam, boom. So between the descriptions of the fellas... And the find my iPhone thing, which nobody's reporting. All of a sudden, three undercover cops are confronting these three fellas. And at some point they say, hey, we're cops. You're under arrest. The fellas that were just involved in that robbery and probably, I think, lots of other ones too. They pull a gun. By the time they pull a gun and point it at a cop, the cops were ready for that. They shot one guy, killed him, shot another, wounded him. The other guy, I think he got away. Or no, he's sitting in the cooler right now. But the reason I thought this story was so good is because we get to hear from the family of the guy who was dead repeat every cliche we've ever heard about what a good boy the killer turned out to be. 
And Tom, detectives say this all began over a cell phone deal. A man was going to meet several men. He had cash in exchange for a cell phone, but investigators say they pulled a gun on him and stole his money. That led to an undercover operation and ultimately this police-involved shooting. Today, I spoke with the mother of the man who was killed and she says the story from police just does not add up. What did he mean to you? Everything. Everything. Reginald was an honest student. Reginald Boston's mother is understandably devastated after learning he was killed in a police-involved shooting overnight. And I knew that something had happened to my baby. I knew that. I felt it in my stomach. She tells us her son, 20 years old, worked two jobs and had a 10-month-old son. He was a rapper, and she says he didn't cause any trouble. When the seller showed up, they robbed the victim at gunpoint. Investigators tell a different story. JSO's chief of investigations briefing us after the shooting, saying officers were responding to an armed robbery where multiple men robbed a prospective iPhone buyer at gunpoint. A little later, undercover detectives tried to arrest three men on Hart's Road. At that time, a firearm was produced by those three suspects. Um, officers gave loud verbal commands for them to drop the gun. They refused to drop that gun at that point. Officers fired their um, service weapons several times. Three JSO officers were involved. None hurt, but they killed Boston, hit another man multiple times, sending him to the hospital, and arrested a third person. Boston's mom says the scenario just doesn't sound right. I know all the officers are supposed to be wearing body cams, and I know I want to see some film. So who's going to be the one to bell the cat on this? Well, you know what? Tommy Sotomayor has already belled the cat. He's the one reminding people that, you know, these, these, sing, these single moms are raising these killers. And they're not just raising them. They're enabling them. They're almost like educating them into the ways of the street and the hood. How to make a few extra bucks here, a few extra bucks there. I don't even call them parents. I call them accomplices. And now we got this mom doing the shedding the crocodile tears, keeping her fingers crossed that she just won the ghetto lottery. There ain't no ghetto lottery. They caught your son in the commission of a very, very bad thing when he put his gun on a cop and the cops, they put their guns on him and the good guys won. Okay, now here's another story about the good guys winning. Or That's what you would think after hearing the story. Guys in prison for like 28 years, he was convicted of triple homicide. Wow, that's a lot of mistakes for one prosecutor and one jury to make. They convicted a dude of killing three people. And now the local, AB, the Philadelphia, Philly.com or the Inquirer headline says, well, they've exonerated this dude. The local TV station, everybody's all smiling because justice is finally being done. They've exonerated this dude. You know, that's what they said about Ava DuVernay's story. When they see us, the Central Park Five, they exonerated them. No, they didn't do any such thing. They found a legal loophole and they let the guy walk right on through it. A killer. Philadelphia man walked out of prison, a free man today after spending 28 years behind bars. A judge vacated the murder conviction of 48-year-old Theophilus Wilson. He was convicted for a triple homicide and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. District Attorney Larry Krasner said the conviction was overturned after an examination of the facts. We were there as Wilson walked free, and he told us how he coped with life behind bars. Lots of prayer, um, a lot of discipline, and um, I turned jail to Yale, prison to Princeton, and a big house into Harvard. So what I did was I turned it into institutional learning for myself. This is the 12th exoneration since D.A. Krasner took office. So one of our viewers from Philadelphia, who goes by Shamrog, I think that means Shamrock in Ireland, in Gaelic, he's the one who caught this piece of BS. And I didn't even have to ask, because I was kind of thinking like, okay, what, I mean, the guy's exonerated? I mean, did they find the guy's twin who did it? I mean, what happened 28 years ago? Why don't we read a little bit of the court record and contemporary accounts and we'll see what uh, Theophilius Wilson was up to 28 years ago when those three people died. Apparently, they just kind of like shot themselves in the back like 10 times. 
Okay, let's 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 read that. Theophilus Wilson was a gang member. He was 17, and his gang was known for robbing other drug dealers. They set up three people from Jamaica, from New York City, and they killed them. Theophilus Wilson was convicted by a jury in Pennsylvania court, three counts, first-degree murder, robbery, and conspiracy, as well as one count of possession of an instrument of crime. This all happened in 1989. He was also convicted at the same time of one count under kind of a the RICO, a Pennsylvania version of the RICO Act. That is when you get people together for form for the purposes of forming a criminal enterprise. So that's how the first chip came away from this case. A judge decided that, listen, when you talk about a RICO, you're talking about somebody who takes a legitimate businesses and uses that business for illegal means. That's our version of RICO. So just by forming a gang that's just all about every single thing they do is illegal. No, that's not RICO. So we're throwing that out right away. But the judge at the time said, there is no dispute that the gang on which Wilson was affiliated had a wholly illegal purpose. Then they went on to attack his white attorney and they were pissed off. This is, this is, this is the, you know, okay, here's what makes this all weird. The Soros DA, Krasner, he's the one going to court and presenting all this evidence to a judge. So when you have the prosecutor show up and go, hey, man, we made a big mistake 28 years ago. You know, that's a lot different than just you or I or a defense attorney showing up. There was a big mistake 28 years ago. And so one of the things they did in court was they showed that these guys were committing. They were part of a crew that committed illegal things. Well, apparently this judge today said, oh, no, you can't do that either. No, that was really bad. Really, really bad. The district court granted a writ of habeas corpus against the guy's lawyer for ineffective assistance of counsel. And determining whether Wilson suffered prejudice, um, quote, we must consider whether evidence of other crimes that was admitted at the trial was so unfairly prejudicial that it warrants granting Wilson a new trial or whether the evidence was independently admissible to prove the murder and related charges. So you can guess what road they took there. They just kicked the whole damn thing out. So let's do a little bit of the narrative of what actually happened. So this guy Wilson was the head of a gang by a guy named, with a guy named Christopher Williams, including a member of uh, this guy Wilson. His uncle was in the gang. They lived in Germantown, also called the Magnolia Street Projects. The gang was known for robbing drug dealers and set up guns for money or guns for drug transactions. The gang would propose to sell guns to drug dealers, but rob the drug dealers of their drugs and money at gunpoint, sometimes killing the drug dealers. September 1989, Williams set up a sham sale of AK-47s to three Jamaican drug dealers from New York. He went to New York, told them to come down to Philly and buy some guns. Williams Williams went out and stole a truck picked up the guys, took them to Germantown to complete the deal. Later that day, Wilson met the three drug dealers. Wilson's the gang leader. No, no, Wilson's the guy just got out of jail. Drove them to Germantown on the prearranged, on the pretext of a gun sale. When the three drug dealers entered, several gang members drew their guns. The gang members robbed the drug dealers of all their cash about $2,400. That's what they were going to pay for the guns. Williams, that's the guy who got out of prison, his uncle, he demanded additional money while pointing his handgun at one of the victim's head. That victim finally admitted he did have some extra money. They took him to retrieve that money, and they, 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 they got $24,000 extra dollars out of him. Then they shot and killed him. Meanwhile, Wilson and a couple other guys guarded the other two drug dealers at gunpoint. When they returned, when when the big guy, Williams, Wilson's uncle, returned and ordered the other drug dealers into a van, Um, Wilson, the guy that's got out of prison, uh, he did not get in that van, but he was in a passenger in a Cadillac that escorted the van. After demanding more money from the other two drug dealers who denied they had any more, Williams, the big bad guy, shot them in the van, dumped their bodies from the van, and dumped their bodies from the van. 
And then the story goes on to say there were lots of other. They finally got one of the gang members to turn, so they got somebody inside offering evidence against uh, the guy who just got out of jail today. So another, another reason they were able to get this guy out of prison after 28 years was because of the prosecutor, a guy named Jack McMahon. Quote, as the U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments on whether jury selection in a Georgia murder trial systematically excluded African-Americans, one Philadelphia name keeps popping up again and again. J- defense attorney Jack McMahon. In a very inf- now famous training video, McMahon, who then was an assistant district attorney, told new prosecutors that, quote, blacks from low-income areas are less likely to convict, and you don't want those people on your jury, an assessment that he says may appear to be racist, but really, he says, is just being realistic. Yeah, we've done that story here dozens of times. So-called Bronx jury. The other day, somebody popped into my Twitter line and said, hey, Colin, you got to read this guy, man. He just did a story on crime stats. You're going to love it. I said, okay, before I read it, did he mention Bronx juries? Did he mention stitches for snitches? Did he mention stopping the cradle-to-prison pipeline? Did he mention stopping arresting fellas? Did he mention any of those things that diminish our crime numbers? Did he mention the fact that black jurors don't like to convict black defendants? Well, no, Colin, he didn't get into the details. Well, if you're going to talk about any crime numbers... And you don't talk about how it's part of the black culture to absolutely diminish people from reporting crime. Then guess what? I don't want to hear your numbers. You know, there was just a guy in Washington, D.C., Paul Dunbar. He wrote a big story for the Washington Post, picked up all over the place. He said, if you're a black person and they ask you to be on a jury, oh yeah, you want to be on that jury. Because once you're on that jury, and if you look in the defendant box and you see a black person there, and you come to the realization that the only reason that black person is there, no matter what the hell he did, is because of white racism, then you don't have to vote to convict him. Oh yeah, he can walk. Racial jury nullification. It's a thing. Another reason why they they kicked this guy out of prison. They thought his lawyer who was practicing this kind of stuff when he was a DA, when he became the, he became his lawyer, a private lawyer. They thought that made him automatically, you know, somebody that was a bad lawyer. But all this happened 28 years ago. I mean, that's the game that's played, right? It's like, longer you wait, the more the evidence is just going to disappear. The more people cannot refute you, memories go, everything goes. Now we got a judge saying, Oh, yeah, let's let this guy out. We exonerate you. Well, nobody exonerated him. What they said is, you know what? We found some gaping loopholes, and I think we can also find a judge and a district attorney that is stupid enough to help us walk through those loopholes and get you out of prison after 28 years for being part of a crime that killed three people. You can be sure. In Philadelphia tonight, on on the heels of another black guy escaping a murder conviction a couple of months ago, Michael White, who killed Sean Skellenegger. You can be sure there's going to be a lot of celebrating in Philadelphia tonight because another fella got off, got out of prison. He got over for something he did, but somehow now they're pretending never happened. I guarantee you one thing. Nothing makes those black kids less angry than that. Westside Philly's back again. Just another large crime spree. Black mob violence everywhere. Call the cops, but they don't care. Long over to you now. We examine authority of the Philly PD. Cop on the beat While walking on South Street Beat down to the ground Tomorrow rinse, lather, repeat Back in school we used to dream About this every day Could it really happen? Rebellion on display If we came up with an idea That sounded smooth It's a criminal justice report Bringing it here to you Westside 
back again Just another large cry spree I might stab you in the back Call the cops, but they don't care Spotlight is on us now Chief of police Da-da Live and direct from Philly Town Put that camera on me now We are ready to roll Not on my watch, no, no, no Back in school we used to dream about this every day Just another large cry spree Black mob violence everywhere Call the cops, but they don't care Listen, listen to Colin Flaherty Listen, listen to Colin Flaherty Westside Philly's back again Just another large cry spree Black mob violence everywhere Listen to Colin Flaherty Westside Philly's back again Just another large cry spree Black mob violence everywhere Call the cops but they